This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. In the beginning, there were a mere few drops of water falling from the skies, emanating from the heavens to some, the natural forces of the universe to others. It was the beginning of the end, an impending deluge so massive that when it arrived, it was said to have washed over the greatest mountains and swallowed all the flatlands of Earth. History is filled with tales of just such an event. The great flood that destroyed the world can be found across cultures and historical timelines, from ancient Sumeria to Chinese mythology and across the world to the indigenous populations of North America, whose oral histories reach back well beyond 12,000 years, into a distant past familiar with a deluge that washed over mankind. Almost everywhere we look, we discover a memory of a great flood passed through oral traditions and written in works throughout history, from Gilgamesh to Noah. Join us on Into the Portal as we journey around the world, discussing the final resting place of a possible ark, flood stories from distant cultures, and the geological evidence of a very real great flood. Hello, and welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber A. And I'm Andrew McKay. <laughs> and we're back with part three of the Great Flood. That's right. <laughs> it's going to be officially flooded after this part three. <laughs> <laughs> really, because I feel like we've almost just touched the tip of the, I know, you know, the right? iceberg, so to speak. <laughs> Which oh, is actually wow, wrong, yeah. because we're going to get into a little bit of that. So, totally. <laughs> glaciation and all that today. Um, yeah, so part three is going to be our wrap-up. We're concluding our flood series. Yep. We're going to touch on a few other things. We're going around the world today with a bunch of flood stories. We and are. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, before we do that, obviously, we do have our usual housekeeping. Indeed. Uh, and <laughs> so awesome. We saw Darren got yeah. his coffee gator french press on the mail safe and sound that's right just in time for the camping season around the corner mm -hmm. and i think he's got some epic adventures planned hey like he's right in the heart of what makes bc so awesome definitely out there in the, oh yeah 100 percent. i mean the bc coast is so beautiful Gorgeous. and he's out on the island and mm -hmm. uh yeah i mean we need to get out there lots of uh, myths yes. and legends too that we uh, haven't yet covered in I know, neck right? of the woods in our own home province so but yeah really stoked that darren got his uh his coffee gator and he uh, posted on uh, facebook and stuff about it which was sweet yep. and uh yeah you guys can obviously uh go check out the coffee gator stuff too so amber's going to give you the yeah well before i give the rundown i just want to say darren if you actually end up taking your coffee gator on any adventures oh. this summer please take some photos so you Definitely. can share them and whatever else because i love that it's great for photo ops i love the little spout it reminds me of an actual crocodile or gator or something like that yeah no it really does yeah but as always you can receive 15 percent off your coffee gator purchase uh simply visit coffeegator.com use our promo code cork spelled q u a r k at checkout to receive this discount of 15%. So that's coffeegator.com, coffee, 
Gator. You know, you guys, <laughs> you guys got it. You got it. I feel like last time I tried to spell it out, I just totally bit it. <laughs> so we usually do. We usually do when we try to spell things, I feel like. But uh, whatever. That's just our, uh, that's our jam. Yeah. And we got a few new reviews, eh? Yeah, I know. I was really stoked. We had one on Facebook from John G. And he doesn't have iTunes, but he found a way to give his feedback, which Sweet. we love. And he writes that when he listens, it's as if we're all sitting together having a beer, discussing something fun. Great chemistry. Since I can't read on iTunes, let me present you with the coveted Five Goblin Award. <laughs> Congrats. So, yeah, I was pretty stoked on that one. Yeah, that's um, awesome. And then we also had some from iTunes, too. Yeah, definitely. Well, and yeah, thank you, John. And it, of course, not everybody has iTunes, so that's totally cool. Like, mm-hmm. hit us up. Like, he just sent us a message, which was great. Yeah, right? it was. And, well, it was in our forum, I believe. Yeah, love mm-hmm. it. I mean, in any any way, shape, or form, it's fantastic. But then I happened to be uh, poking around on just random countries and stuff and came back to Canada, and I haven't actually checked our Canadian iTunes for a little while, but mm-hmm. we had a new one uh, from a guy by the name of Joel McKenzie, and it's titled Well Researched Five Stars. So thank you so much, Joel. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, very good. The hosts bring energy, and it's a blast to listen to them talk about myths. They do their research, and they don't just read off a paper. Highly recommended. So that's awesome. We really appreciate that, Joel. Dope. And Thanks, keep Joel. those rolling in, peeps. We really appreciate it. Like, on the US one, it's so annoying because we have, like, two or something, like, written one-star reviews on there, but because one person's clicked that that review was helpful, Hmm. it shows up at the top, even though we have like 85 five stars on there. So anyways, but we really appreciate everybody who's taking the time. I don't like getting hung up on that kind of stuff. I find it hilarious, to be totally honest with you. But uh, (laughs) we also have some other news. So we're going to have a dark week next week Mm -hmm. um, because we're kind of uh, preparing for a big move. Amber and I, um, we're using the Marie Kondo method and uh, (laughs) saying goodbye to a lot of our crap. (laughs) So we're getting rid of all kinds of stuff. We're having a a moving sale to be announced now. I'm just kidding. But, uh, well, we actually are going to do a yard sale. We I haven't are. done one of those for a while. If we have but, any local listeners. <laughs> yeah, I think we have a couple anyway. But um, but we will still have our special film Friday this week where we're looking at the miniseries uh, Ascension. Okay, mm-hmm. we sat down with Chris from uh, the host of A Dash of Science podcast, and we had a ton of fun with this one. But we wanted to make sure we gave you guys some time to check it out because it is like a six-part series mm-hmm. on Netflix. It so it's a, it's a little bit more of an investment than just checking out an hour and a half film. Oh, Netflix. I believe it's on Amazon. Oh, Amazon as well. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. I believe. I believe. I can't actually. So yeah, make sure you guys go check that out because it is a really cool sci-fi series. And uh, yeah, we'll be releasing that on Friday despite not uh, having the regular episode released. So yeah, yeah, we've got a lot of work to do. So we've got a lot of cool things in the mix for you guys coming up. So we just want to make sure we're focused on it. Exactly. Yeah, we've got a lot going on. It's been uh, a lot to keep up with. Definitely. But um, yeah, and we do have other exciting announcements. I... Stay tuned for the next like week or so. We're gonna be announcing our March Patreon exclusive. So we've got a brand new full length and a brand new mini sode coming your way this month for our patrons. Love you guys. Nice. <laughs> All right, let's get into it here. Um, let's do it. Before we actually get into what we're gonna cover for part three, let's do a little recap. For Sounds part good. Two. Just a quick, quick, quick one. Um, so as far as the search for the arc, like we focus on that quite heavily in part two. And so I just wanted to recap exactly what story said what, because like there was different locations, right? We mainly focused on Ararat, but we did mention a few other locations. So we did. just to reiterate, Sumerian version, which is the earliest known version of this sort of great flood mythology or story, says that basically the Ark went to rest on flat land as it dried. And some... Okay, so some people say that there's not really a, a location given as far as a mountain peak, but some people do point to uh, 
Bahrain. Mm-hmm. Bahrain. Bahrain. <laughs> Amber's been mispronouncing that all week. Ba- so. Bahrain, I'm saying. Which is <laughs> <laughs> not, yeah, not it's it. It's not Bahrain. It's Bahrain. Anyways, so some people think that in the Sumerian version, it actually points to Bahrain. Mm-hmm. And in the Akkadian version, it states an actual mountain. It says, says Mount Nimush, which mm-hmm. has been translated as Mount Nasir. Yes. Which is, um, again, right in that sort of nexus of what we know today as Turkey, Armenia, and then Iraq. Like, kind of right in there. Yeah. And then, of course, we get... So, that was the Akkadian version. So, that came a little bit later. And that was the one with Atrahasis. So, right. before before Atrahasis, Noah's name, or the hero's name, was Ziyasudra. Yes. And then we get this different version, different name. Okay. And now, okay, Stephanie Dolly, uh, the author of Myths from Mesopotamia, which we've heavily referenced throughout this whole series, yeah. she actually points to another Greek version which names Armenia. And there was a character named Barosus, um, which we're actually going to touch on in a sec here because he ties into part three too. But essentially in this Greek version, they are naming mountains in Armenia. Okay. Okay. All right. And so now then Genesis, which we're most familiar with, Mount Ararat. Turkey is kind of the main interpretation. Yeah. But as we've seen, others think that it's not Mount Ararat, it's the mountains of the land of Ararat. So a general region rather than a specific mountain top. And exactly. I just want to say here as well, mm-hmm. like obviously there's a varying locations here is what we're getting, but at the same time as well with this whole idea of Bahrain versus mountain tops of Ararat or Nimush and these types of places, that's a big difference, right? It's a flat mm-hmm. island so like mm-hmm. that the that the ark came to rest after the floods had really receded not that it yeah. had crash landed on the top of a mountain that mm-hmm. really just looked like a little speck sticking out of what was left <laughs> of the land you know Thank what i kidding. mean so that's kind of an interesting difference it is and it kind of makes me think what if there was more than one noah and what if there was like, you know, like we said, right, maybe there's more than one ship floating around during this catastrophic time of flood. And on top of that, like, cause you know how we get all these different timelines, different lengths that the ship was actually floating and that this flood period existed in. Some are as short as like a week, some are longer, it's weeks. And then some are 40 days, some yeah. are 150 days, right. like, you know, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And for me, those differences almost could be explained by, say, maybe there's more than one arc. I'm putting that huge air quotes there, like boats, just like a vessel, right, that's floating on water. Mm -hmm. And that perhaps the seven-day narrative was because they actually, that boat did actually, like, slam into a mountainside that wasn't fully submerged yet. But then you get the ones where it's like, they're floating around for hundreds of days, and it's because they didn't actually crash into Anyways, that's just a side note, and it doesn't actually lend itself to anything we've researched. (laughs) No, but it reminds me of the movie Noah that we've just recently watched, and Mm. I was saying to you the entire time, like, all these guys go back and are scheming about how to get on Noah's boat, and I'm like, hey guys, why don't you just build a boat? (laughs) Like, did literally nobody own a boat? Like before this, all of a sudden it was like, hey, they were boats. navigators. Boats, then... guys. You guys ever heard of those? What's... <laughs> like, okay. Anyway. That was a really strange interpretation of all of that, too, hey? Because we got yeah. the very beginning, you get like that mythical animal that's like totally unexplained. And then somehow Noah ends up bringing up all of the animals that we know as present day animals. Right. And they just the skip out that other one there. They, yeah. they leave out the uh, mythical. It was like in between, like a, and it was like, it was like a scaled antelope. Yeah. It had like scales on it. That was weird. It was bizarre. Um, we're not really going to get into that. Though. Anyway, we're not going to. I did like parts of that movie and not others, but anyway. 
<laughs> I'm not going to give my opinion on that. <laughs> um, so, okay, but anyway, sorry to kind of derail you a bit there. No worries, no worries. So, okay, so we covered the story, so we get different places that this art could have rested in. So then what we did is we touched on the varying expeditions, and we did focus mainly on Ararat. And there was that 19th century guy, Perrault, which was the German professor. And we, Andrew, you were kind of telling us that part. And he was yes. basically, he had two separate occasions where he tried to summit. Yeah. And he wasn't successful. No. But he, he tried once more. And then on the third, he made it to the top. Exactly. And I actually, we missed this detail, but I saw this other resource that said that he actually raised a cross on the top of the yeah, mountain. Yeah. And he toasted with wine to Noah as like the first vintner and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. which you do get reference to in Noah the movie. Right. That's almost a little bit of a cheeky thing to do, considering the story of Noah as the vintner mm -hmm. after they land and he gets hammered and ends up naked on the beach and his kids have to come covering up, cover him up so God doesn't see. Yeah. Um, it's not exactly a moment full of pride for Noah, that's for sure. It's bizarre. It's like... I toast to you and your naked, drunken ways. Um, that's interesting, though. I mean, <laughs> definitely trying to... Like, Perrault and... I, I'm almost saying Poirot. I feel Poirot. like... You feel like this, like, chubby Belgian man scaling Mount Ararat <laughs> to find an ark. But, uh, uh, no, Poirot, German, he's very much like a lot of these these guys going to look for the ark on Ararat, right? Yeah. Like, they have these preconceptions. They have these... You know, he's he's staking that cross at the top, and that in and of itself, like, speaks to his entire journey, right? It's almost mm -hmm. like he didn't even need to go, because it's like, even if he didn't find the whole arc in and of itself, it's like, it is there to these people looking for it. Very true. Which I think is cool. It's like, in, this, in a certain sense, you have to be that way in order to find these things, right? The belief precedes the evidence. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. Which we're going to see, again, we're going to get another fun narrative about that, but... Yeah, so all the creationist efforts, like, following those 1949 photos that captured what seemed to be an anomaly on the top of Mount Ararat, there was all these investigations that never really seemed to pan out, hey? And we got pretty in-depth with James Irwin, his couple expeditions to Mount Ararat, which I mistakenly reported that he, like, died. He did not die from his injuries on Mount Ararat, but he did no. die of heart failure. At, Very young. He died young super age, young. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah we kind of... We mixed yeah. that up with, I think, another guy who fell. There was a guy who did fall and die, but he wasn't as, like, prominent <clears throat> prominent of a, an, ar an arc, <laughs> an arc uh, searcher, so to speak. Exactly. So I don't really want to get too muddled into the whole creationist efforts because I think that they kind of, they're working from a skewed perspective on the, like, what they take to be historical accuracies of the Genesis version. So... There's a whole bunch of stuff in that that eh, I don't even think we need to really touch. Well, the anymore. irony about a lot of that is that they're working with the young earth creation theory in a lot of those cases. Yeah. So it's like, here's this stuff that's only 6,000 years old. Um, like the earth is only 6,000 years old, mm -hmm. which in, an, in a lot of ironic ways, like discounts a lot of geological evidence that they could use to potentially, you know, make arguments for a great flood, mm -hmm. right? But that the geological evidence points to much, much earlier periods of time. I know, right? So and you're just, just you're just you're you're just saying, you know what? Hey, there's great evidence there, but yeah, yeah. Forget just, forget about it, huh? Right. Yeah. So just that to me is like I, I saw it referred to as like almost like a straw man type of argument, right? Yeah. Because they are ignoring all of these legitimate premises yes. in order to construct what they believe to be accurate and so again right it's very easy to topple those and which is why i don't really want to get too bogged down in addressing it all no in the same breath though you need to have both sides right you got to have the believers and then you got to have the hardcore <laughs> the hardcore science too yeah. i think yeah 
Exactly. Um, And then another thing that we didn't really touch on, which we do want to get back to today, is this Mount Nemoosh. And, yeah, the idea that perhaps not as much attention has been paid to Mount Nemoosh slash also interpreted as Mount Nasir. Yes. Um, But we'll touch on that again because apparently, yeah, just a lot of people go to Mount Ararat. They don't go to these other places, which is bizarre to me. But anyways... Before we get into all these uh, worldwide flood narratives, there are a couple of searches that we actually didn't cover in part two. And one quick mention, just before we get into this one that's really entertaining, is the fact that apparently in World War One, World War One, pre-Russian Revolution, there were Russian aviators that were going over this area, flying over, and they actually sighted what they saw thought to be the Ark. Really? On Mount Ararat. Mount Ararat. So one specific peak. The peak these guys have been... Okay, crazy. Yes, All yes. Right. So the Mount Ararat, not mountains of Ararat. Right. And so the story goes that the Tsar actually sent an expedition, the results of which were subsequently destroyed during the revolution. Oh, <laughs> man. Of course. But that's almost more like just folklore slash urban legend because a lot of people say that there's nothing to that at all. Really? Okay. Yeah. So it's just a fun mention. Another one that's a little bit more involved, which I really enjoyed, was from this book that I just uncovered this week called um, If the Egyptians Drowned in the Red Sea, Where Are the Pharaoh's Chariots? <laughs> and it's exploring the historical dimension of the Bible. It's by a man named Benjamin Adidin Skolnick. Mm-hmm. What a name. Skolnick. So he takes on the entire Bible and its scientific validity in this text, but obviously he inevitably has to touch on Noah and the Ark slash epic flood story. Yeah. And just for me, <laughs> this chapter specifically on the Ark was just, it's, I can't even begin to overstate how entertaining it was, <laughs> like how he opened it. <laughs> and he basically goes off on this CBS two hour primetime special, which was called the, Di- the incredible discovery of Noah's Ark. <laughs> And, you know, that's that's appropriate for a primetime special. Yeah, right? sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so they featured a biblical scholar and self-described archaeologist. I don't think he actually has any training in the field, but his name is Darren McGavin. And he was the one that was like the main dude giving credence to this latest claim about the Ark. Okay. Okay. So this extraordinary claim came from a man named George Jamal, spelled J-A-M-M-A-L. All righty. And he described how back in 19... So, okay, wait. This CBS documentary premiered in 1994. Just just for, you know, dates and all that. But this guy, George Jamal, allegedly ascended Mount Ararat in 1983. So almost a decade earlier. Nine years earlier. Him and his buddy, Vladimir, (laughs) or companion, how he's described, they ascended it together. And as they climbed, he doesn't actually state what elevation this was, but he says essentially they found a hole in the ice. So again, this is getting up to the peak, right? Because they're at the icy territory, well beyond the tree line. Right. And he describes how they found a hole in the ice into which they climbed. (laughs) Alrighty. That's ballsy, first of all. (laughs) Yes, that is really ballsy. Okay. So then he describes, this Jamal character describes how he was inside a chamber made of wood. And there appeared to be pens inside this chamber where animals could be kept. Hmm. And so in his mind, this affirmed to the pair of them that they had indeed found the Ark encased in ice on Mount Ararat. So they began taking photographs and collecting evidence, uh, including a single chunk of wood. Okay. (laughs) But tragedy. 
stripe. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so apparently his buddy Vladimir, which oh, only has Vladdy. one name. Oh, poor Vladdy. <laughs> Bad Vlad. Bad Vlad. <laughs> he tripped while he was taking a photo of the scene. So Jamal describes it like he was posing in front of what they had found. But I'm confused, right? Because if you've climbed into a hole, I'm assuming everything is pitch black. So you have to have some fancy lights, whatever. Sure, maybe you do. He doesn't describe any of that. But he describes how this doesn't make sense either. Okay, so if you're taking a picture of the scene that you found, Vladimir steps back to take a, to like get a wide-angle shot. Right. Trips, falls, causes an avalanche, gets swept away in the avalanche along with his, his camera. Of course. Dies on the mountain, as described by Jamal. And then Jamal manages to make it out. I don't know how he managed this, but essentially him and the piece of wood escape and they make it off of Mount Ararat alone. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Pretty dramatic scene. I know, right? So this doesn't make sense though. Like if you're taking a picture of the scene, if you're outside, all you would be taking a picture of is the hole because there would be no other evidence, right? No, you wouldn't have the the inner wooden chamber. Like, yeah, like all you'd have in there is some sort of a flash to try to can. To capture exactly. that. Exactly. So there's no way you could cause an avalanche while you're inside the chamber, which is what they would presumably be taking photos of. So again, I, I mean, you would take photos of the entrance as well, obviously. True. You would t- you try to document everything, but it does seem a little... Yeah, convenient? It's a little... Well, <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. It's kind of one of those reverse convenient things, right? Because it's like, oh, hey, mm-hmm. he's dead. But yeah, that is convenient. He took a picture. We don't have the camera anymore. I know, right? All we have is this chunk of wood that's Um, totally decontextualized. But anyway, so this guy, Jamal, he's the opener for the CBS doc. And then essentially what happens in this documentary, which we didn't actually get to watch, which I'm really sad about. We should try and track it down. But essentially what happens is right after that, you get this Darren McGavin, which is the aforementioned biblical scholar. And he starts to, like, you know, kind of expound on these claims and add legitimacy to them. Yeah. And he... I love this. He adds... (laughs) Such extraordinary claims, such as the idea that um, biblical times technology included batteries and AC. Yeah, okay. So air conditioning, which honestly, you can do air conditioning with like literally having airflow through a chunk of ice. So that to me isn't too high tech. You can pull it off. But anyways, yeah. the, the way that they were phrasing it is like they have all the modern conveniences we have today. That it's like the same the, the same level. Exactly. Because, yeah. like, even the Baghdad batteries as an ancient example of right. something that could potentially have been harnessed. In Which has some been way. myth busted, though, right? Like, the myth busters right. did that. And it's like you could barely, pa- you wouldn't be able to power freaking anything. Yeah. <laughs> like, basically, right? Exactly. Okay, so then um, they also go on to say that the source of the flood was underground beneath the quote, earth chambers and exploded to the surface with a force of 10. Billion. Ten Hydrogen bombs. Oh, dear. So wouldn't that explode the entire Earth? Um, ten we get billion Chris on this. hydrogen bombs. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and just guess. Why that have that billions might... when you can have millions? Yeah. <laughs> We're almost in a situation like that with this type of a statement. I know, right? Like, because that is like, how would you even... Not only is that just like, seem outrageous, <laughs> an outrageous scale, but it is how would you ever even try to explain how you've calculated that. Exactly. And where's the evidence for that? Well, I don't of know. Of course there's none. Okay, so this is we haven't even got to my absolute favorite yet. So this is <laughs> in this documentary they state that they have found fossils of animals in quote swimming positions, including fish who have been found in positions of terror. 
Finn's extended eyes bulging. Oh, no. <laughs> Good boy. A fish with eyes bulging. <laughs> they must have been real scared. But these aren't even actual bodies. It's the fossils. <laughs> it's not even the actual fish. Oh, my fish. God. But, of course, but if the Earth's only 6,000 years old, oh, then that, mark, that, that, that time's out, maybe. <laughs> Anyway, Maybe. Um, that's hilarious, though. But yeah, the idea, mm-hmm. positions of terror. I <laughs> don't do you think, I that? do not think <laughs> fish you? can have facial expressions. I know. I don't understand. The mouth is either open or closed. That's and it. They don't even have eyelids. Like, no. they can't even blink at you. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Oh, that's priceless. So, of course, this guy, Skolnick, takes a heavy hand with these people and right. just like, big backhand just like this is ridiculous and and on top of that um the times actually in their july 1993 issue they actually discovered that jamal the original character here had never been to ararat before and there was one source that cited that he had actually taken a chunk of wood covered it in teriyaki sauce and then (laughs) baked it in his california home oven They're like, this, the, the researchers are looking at it being like, you know, this wood, piece of wood is really making me hungry for some reason. Like, it's got that tang. I just oh, want to man. take a bite out of it. Mm. <laughs> just like, that's a little, that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. That's pretty funny. So isn't that just, I just loved this guy's approach to it because he he builds it up, right? He, he makes you seem as if maybe this Jamal guy actually did do this, but then it's just like, boom, just like yeah. totally takes the legs out from Mungia. Yeah. And then he goes on to kind of make a case for why the location of Mount Ararat is really a misinterpretation of the biblical text. And right, okay. it actually reads, like literally the verse reads, the mountains of Ararat. It Which we mentioned in, exactly, in, in, in right. the last part. And that's kind of, honestly, it's kind of funny because he agrees with Sir Walter Raleigh from the 1600s. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that it extended much further into Asia. Well, that's where we kind of hit. Like maybe Western Asia, but mm-hmm. he doesn't say like, you know, like not like Far East or anything like that. Right. But that they were just like, it is much more vast of a territory to be looking for a potential resting place. Exactly. So then Skolnick, he actually brings this guy, Mr. Umberto Casuto, who is another modern commentator, kind of a skeptic, but more of a researcher, right? He wants to take this seriously. And he, he again points the idea that this specific text from Genesis points to, it connotes a mountain that's unspecified in the lands of Ararat versus Mount, Mount Ararat. Ararat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think, I mean, people latched onto that, obviously, because it was convenient, even though it's re- referred to in, a, in the plural in Genesis. Mm-hmm. But people looked at that and were like, it was a mountain everyone knew because of its historical significance, right? Like a point of contention for like border disputes. And it's like, it's, isn't it called like the portal to hell or something? It's something similar to like Portel and Del Infierno that we mentioned in the Lost City of the Monkey God, because there's so much death that's happened on Mount Ararat. So it just made sense in terms of the story of Noah and like a deluge wiping out mankind for people to latch onto that mountain. True. And just the fact that and ignore said, the plural. <laughs> well, yeah. And it is such an awesome, impressive mountain. When you right. look at it, it's like, how it's big. You not? It's one of the tallest in the world that people go to as like, check off their mountain climbing list. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, Skolnick then kind of goes on to say, like I have the quote from him and he's talking about exactly this, this misinterpretation and, where another location could have possibly been. So he kind of says, history and tradition, this is a quote, history and tradition misinterpret Genesis by limiting the Ark's landfall to the smaller Araxis Valley area included in Mount the Mount Ararat region, rather than the Urachian regions or the mountains of Uratu as described in Genesis. Okay. The Hebrew term Ararat 
as it is found in the Bible, is the equivalent of Urartu. <laughs> so the Assyrian Babylonian name of a kingdom that flourished between the Aras and Upper Tigris rivers. Okay. So this is referring to a biblical area that yes. can be interpreted as the lands of Ararat. Interesting. Yes. So this is getting into the lands of Ararat. It's like, because originally when I was thinking about it, it'd be like, you're just thinking geographic territory. Mm -hmm. But this could also describe something even more significant, like yeah. a real, that's so cool. It's, it's a region and it literally is in the very nexus of this region we're talking about, right? The Mesopotamian floodplains, right. the, the sort of, yeah, the exact, the Turkey, Armenia, and Iraqi slash Syrian, like that Very whole cool. area there. Hmm. The okay. fertile crescent. The crescent. The crescent. Indeed. So then the Skolnik guy, he's very level-headed, and he goes on to suggest several different places and several interpretations of where the Ark may have come to rest according to these earlier Babylonian and Assyrian traditions, which is kind of what we've taken as as the crux of the, the meat of the story, you know what I mean? Like, Genesis just came later. Okay, so then we get into Mount Nasir, and he actually suggests that um, Nasir is the mountain of salvation because Nasir is the Semitic word for salvation. Okay. Yeah, and that the actual mountain may, according to this interpretation, be this mountain that's referred to as Pir Omar Gudran. Gudran. Gudran, which is found in Iraqi Kurdistan. 9,000 feet. That's no slouch yeah. of a mountain either. It's not. And so that's a very impressive mountain. Very, it could very much be the place where an ark could have rested. You want to try to pronounce this city here? <laughs> Near the city of... Okay, okay I'm going to give it a try. All right. Near the city of Suli... Okay, wait, wait, wait. Sulimania. Sulimania? That's actually not bad. Yeah, I think that's about right. In Iraqi Kurdistan. Hmm. Mm -hmm. You can't even look up Pir Omar Gudran, though, because it doesn't even come up on Google Maps. Is that right? It just comes up with, like, a temple or something. It's annoying. Interesting. <laughs> but anyways, yeah. He actually suggests another... So this is when we're getting into the Barosis version that I mentioned, that Greek version. Right. And he... Okay, so Barosis, this guy, he's a character in Gilgamesh, I believe. The Greek version of Gilgamesh or something like that. That sounds really familiar. I think you're right. And he actually claims that the ship could be seen on Mount Kudi, which is 7,700 feet in the air, hmm. has a spectacular view of the Mesopotamian plain, and it is in Kurdistan. So it's right at that nexus again. Same region. So Mount Kudi, spelled C-U-D-I, is also referred to as Mount Judy. <laughs> Judy and Kudi. Judy and Kudi. So anyways, just whatever. But if you look up Mount Judy, you'll actually find it on a map. And this is interesting because it's approximately 200 miles south of Mount Ararat and has a lot to back it up. Okay, so in the Quran, um, this Mount Judy or Kudi is supposed to be Mount Ararat. And it still oh. lies within the biblical region of Ararat. And so I, I can't remember what it was. There was some interpretation or some wording that actually Mount Ararat and Judy or Kudi were actually the same. Okay, so, okay. But that but that potentially doesn't mean that the Ararat we now believe to be Ararat is, ha, had this alternate name, but that this actually could have been a different mountain altogether? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And this Mount Judy or Kudi is also famed for many archaeological sites around the mountain, in and around the mountain area. And, well, okay, the Turkish word for this is Kudi Dog. And so that's where you kind of get Kudi, Mount Kudi versus Mount Judy. But Judy is interesting because it is Arabic for highest. 
and many Islamic scholars believe that this is the true Ararat Mountain because of such. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And there's local tribesmen that refer to a boat on the mountain, high up in the mountain chain, still resting on what they call Al-Judi, which is just Mount Judi right. or whatever. Yeah. So what that's, do you think of that? I think that that's absolutely fascinating, and it makes you, it begs the question as are there other expeditions that have happened that we just don't hear about because we're in the <laughs> West and we are just so like hammered with the Genesis version of the story that all the expeditions, like when you go to look for documentaries on the Great Flood, which we have done obviously mm -hmm. for this series, we've watched probably at least four different, four or five different documentaries spread over probably 40 years from the 80s till now. Yeah. All of them are focused on Ararat. All of them are <gasps> focused on Genesis. None of them mention so the, Aca the Akkadian, uh, the, the Babylonian and Sumerian versions of the original. Original story. Exactly. And no one is proposing any other possible locations. No. And it's funny that you mentioned, like, oh, what if there's other expeditions? What if there's other news headlines that we just don't know about? Apparently, in 1949, this was from um, this book, this, uh, the, oh my god, what's the name of it again? Ooh. It's by Skolnik, but anyways. Okay, we'll come back to it. It's okay. <laughs> it's all good. But he cites two Turkish journalists that claim to have seen a 500-foot ship resting on the mountain of Kudi or Judy. This was 1949. Kind of a weird date, right? Because of the flyover, the AV, those photos that were taken yeah. the same year of Mount Ararat. Definitely a strange coincidence, yeah. timing-wise. Another interesting point, too, just to back this location up, is the fact that there's this Arab historian. His name's Al Masudi, and he was around in uh, the 900s. So 900, 956 is when he died. AD. Okay. And he reported that the spot where the art came to rest could be seen in his time. And he names Judy. So where, okay, we need to make an expedition mm -hmm. to, I mean, I, I don't see us uh, going into that region of the world anytime no. soon, but uh, <laughs> if I had an Iron Man suit and I could just scooty pop, scooty puff scooty junior, puff. scooty puff junior my way over top that mountain and get some <laughs> photos or something, that would be sick. <laughs> But um, that is absolutely fascinating, though, because I'm just, I, oh, man, it's just one of those classic situations of, like, mm -hmm. it reminds me, we just watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, too, with just that classic line, like, they're digging in the wrong place, right? Like, maybe yeah. people are just flat out looking in the wrong place for this type I of know, evidence. right? Okay, so we've got two different ones here. So we've got this Mountain of Salvation, which is this Piroman Gudron, which is in Iraqi Kurdistan. And then we get Judy, again, which is also in, it's in Armenia. Oh, sorry, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> but then we also get another location here called El Buruz. This is the sacred mountain of the Iranians, and it's near the southern tip of the Caspian Sea. Okay. Near Tehran, actually. And so, again, this is a very sacred mountain and kind of ties into... We had someone reach out to us who's actually a Finnish national at Paula, and mm -hmm. she had another interesting tie that we're going to get to in just a minute here. But this kind of ties into her ideas because she mentions the Caspian Sea as a right. possible route or a possible place where the ark could have landed or wherever. So I kind of, I have this funny little joke at the end here. It's like <laughs> all of these locations, like the more, like just go and look at it on a map, like literally just Google Earth it. Like I have Google Earth in front of me right now because otherwise I'd be like, I just wouldn't even be able to process it. You need it. it for this type you of really episode. Do. You need the visual. So if you look at it, though, all of these locations kind of can be included in a wide triangle <laughs> over Man. the region. So I'm thinking we've got a Mesopotamian triangle going on here. So Amber's new theory is that the Ark just disappeared, everyone. It's just it's like, an it's like the Great Lakes Triangle. It's like they're still floating. Yeah. Noah's still floating around. It's like the episode of X-Files. 
Exactly. <laughs> Frozen in time. So that was no, kind, of anyway, that kind of my fun funny. idea. <laughs> I don't <laughs> I know. It. I love it. Yeah. And so, again, right, like, so this Skolnick guy, he he mentions all these. He doesn't say that he ascribes to one or any of them or any. Right. But then he goes on to talk about evidence of just a great flood in general and tackles the theory that the Mediterranean could have caused a massive flood event in the Black Sea region. And this is referred to as the Black Sea Deluge, de- deluge theory. Mm-hmm. Deluge. deluge. It's such a weird word. Deluge. Deluge. Deluge fluge. De- it's not, it reminds me of Veluvelage. Veluvelage. Garbage. Yeah. Garbage. <laughs> yeah. Just pronounce it like it's French and it sounds a lot better. Yeah. But he kind of goes on about this Black Sea Deluge theory. And it kind of, it all starts with the idea that the Bosporus Strait, which is a strait that runs between the, um, Where's your map, it's Amber? It's the Turkish Peninsula, and then the the mainland on the other side of that. Right. Okay. And basically, it's right where um, oh, what's, what's <laughs> the capital of Turkey? In? Oh, Istanbul. Istanbul. Yeah. Istanbul. So it's right where Istanbul, the historic capital of Constantinople, used to be there. Now it's Istanbul. Oh, okay. So it's right at that precipice. And so the general outline of this theory is that a catastrophic inflow of Mediterranean seawater cascaded into the Black Sea freshwater lake approximately 7,200 years ago okay. from present day. So again, we're putting it into the approximate 5th millennia BC. Interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. so we can work with that for certain flood stories for sure. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the general outline again. So it's it kind of goes off of this glacial meltwater theory. So right now we're experiencing a period of warming, or right now, like in, in that particular <laughs> At moment. That time. Exactly. So they kind of have this theory, and this was put forth in 1997 by a man named uh, William Ryan and Walter Pittman and a bunch of their colleagues. And they kind of said that as this glacial meltwater um, turned the Black and Caspian Seas into freshwater lakes that drained eventually into the Aegean Sea, um, these were all freshwater environments. And so as... This is just a quote here. It says, As glaciers retreated, some of the rivers emptying into the Black Sea declined in volume and changed course to drain into the North Sea. The levels of the lake dropped through evaporation, while changes in worldwide hydrology caused overall sea levels to rise. The rising Mediterranean finally spilled over a rocky silate at the Bosporus. So that's that strait right. that I mentioned. Yes. Bosporus, sorry. Just make sure oh, I said that right. It's all good. <laughs> the event flooded, this is huge, 155,000 <laughs> kilometers squared, which roughly equals about 60,000 square miles of land. And it significantly expanded this Black Sea shoreline to the north and the west. So that's massive. I mean, that mm-hmm. is massive. It's still regional, yeah. but it's huge. It is huge. And it would have been catastrophic. Absolutely. If you were on the coast of this freshwater environment, you would have thought this is the end of the world, essentially. 100%. That mm-hmm. would have been... I mean, yeah, the the word deluge is the only thing to really describe something like that, mm-hmm. right? Because... Just think about it, right? It's such a narrow opening. So if you get that, it's almost like a, a, a naturally occurring dam that yeah. just breaks. Exactly. And then you just get this massive, it would have been like a tsunami. And that is a very, re, that is a reoccurring thing that is going to come up again later in our, in the theories and evidence section of this episode, because that has happened 
more than once. Let's mm-hmm. just say that. Yeah. And in more than one place. Exactly. And there was a guy named Petko Dimitrov, and he was a Bulgarian oceanographer. In the 1990s, he decided to test this theory, and he dove down in a, like, underwater submersible and found evidence of an ancient beach. And the shells Sweet. of which dated originally okay so some of these dated to be about 7000 BCE so that's um, that's even more significant so that pushes the timeline back like 2000 years yeah um but they also found evidence of a marine environment that quickly overtook a quote long established freshwater system and so they collected shells from all these sites there was a lot of sites and they were focusing on the north end of uh, the black sea And so they tested these, they sent them off to multiple different parties, and then the main findings came back that they were approximately dated to 5580 to 5470 BCE. Okay. And the quote was, there was not some gradual influx, but one great wave. (laughs) Hmm. Well, that is uh, certainly what we're searching for. Isn't that cool, though? Ancient shorelines, like, you know, and you're, like, in your submersible, and you're, like, look, imagine if you saw, like, an umbrella and, like, a a beach towel. (laughs) (laughs) Got some sunscreen out there. some (laughs) ancient guy from, like, the early Bronze Age just chilling. just, like, a skeleton with sunglasses on. (laughs) Just, like, up, like, from Pompeii, like, some of those skeletons where they're, like, just straight in the exact position when that volcanic (laughs) eruption happened. It's actually pretty hilarious. I wonder if, like, Oh, this is a dirty thought. I wonder if they found anyone, like, doing it. Oh, I'm sure they did. <laughs> you'd think good, they would. I mean, really just weird. statistically, you'd think that would have to happen. <laughs> Somebody know. had to have been doing that at the time. <laughs> that just popped in my head. Anyway, that's hilarious. Imagine, oh, I'm, oh, I'm not even going to remember This is really fascinating, though, this stuff that you're, like, this, uh, yeah, Dimitrov, because... I well, it makes me want to be like an underwater archaeologist. Or Doesn't it remind too. you um, of Titanic? And yeah. when they go in and they're like looking at the stuff. A hundred percent. And it just would be strange because you're seeing land formations that shouldn't be where they are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's that's again something I'm going to bring up in a little bit here. It's really exciting, hey? Definitely. Could you just imagine that? It's like your big aha moment, like right in front of you. You're like, oh. anyways. Yeah. So now this is where. <laughs> Sorry, what? Now we just need the ark. Well. I think we're ditching the Ark. Well, he's certainly not looking for it down there or anything like that. No, none of these people were. They were just looking for evidence of a great flood. Right. And that's where we get Robert Ballard. And he, again, right, so this is the Titanic dude that we mentioned in part two that we're going to get into for part three. Mm -hmm. And he is a famed oceanographer. He did find the Titanic in, what was it, the 1990s, I think. Um, And he got really fascinated about this potential for this crazy epic flood and he didn't think that anyone is ever gonna find an ark but he just wanted to prove that a flood event could have actually happened it's a good place to start yeah and so he was really inspired by uh petkov was that his name yeah petko petko yeah petko Petko dimitrov what a cool name yeah and so he went and did his own investigations i think they did at least two but um he kind of came from this Exactly that. This idea of a massive flood event that was caused by glacial meltwaters. Right, yes. And he, there's a funny quote here, because he's from Connecticut. And he kind of just had this thing where he said, About 12,000 years ago, much of the world was covered in ice. Where I lived in Connecticut um, was ice a mile above my house, all the way back to the North Pole. And then about... I guess he says about 15 million kilometers is just a big ice cube. So that's essentially what we're working with for like, you know, the amount of water we're working with here. And then he says, but then 
it started to melt. We're talking about the floods of our living history. Yeah. And that's essentially where he's working from. And then he kind of says here, the question is, was there a mother of all floods? So he kind of um, was working with Columbia University too. And these two scientists, which I feel really bad. I don't have their names in front of me. We'll have it in the sources. It's okay. Mm-hmm. But they, again, right, they believe that this now salty Black Sea was once an isolated freshwater lake surrounded by farmland until it was flooded by an enormous wall of water from this rising Mediterranean Sea. Okay. Yeah. And then it says here, the force of the water was about 200 times that of Niagara Falls, sweeping away everything in its path. So it would have been catastrophic. (laughs) Not 10 billion hydrogen bombs. (laughs) Not quite. Not quite that. But anyways... Yeah, so Ballard and his team went to this region to see if they could uncover evidence of such an event. Um, and, of course, right, this would have permanently raised the sea level. So yeah. that's why they're looking for these ancient beaches. <sighs> so he went to the south because he knew that they had focused heavily on the north end of the Black Sea. But he was thinking there need, it needs to be ubiquitous. It needs to be everywhere in order to actually support this. Totally. So he went about 400 feet below the surface in the south and, again, unearthed an ancient shoreline. So this was proof, again, to Ballard that this catastrophic event did occur in the Black Sea. Very cool. Yeah, and they did more um, carbon dating, too, and it was consistent with that um, 55 BC, 5500 BCE range. Nice, okay, so they got confirmation on that. Mm-hmm, yeah. Pretty crazy. I'm just like, I'm sorry, I'm having a, a moment where I'm just like, whoa. <laughs> it's all pretty profound stuff, mm-hmm. right? Um, because obviously, like you guys can kind of tell that we're working towards this idea of there being, obviously, we know that there's catastrophic floods that happened. The and question, like these stories are based it, off of something. Exactly. Right mm-hmm. um, the question that we're trying, the thing we're trying to connect is the timeline of when they happened, because even if there are these more regional ones, they still were absolutely devastating like to the extent where if you were in you could have seen them from space Mm -hmm. because they were that extreme exactly and even if it wasn't literally the entire globe at once like Mm -hmm. in the stories it's like we're almost there like we're Mm -hmm. we're we're very we're getting there which Mm -hmm. is pretty wild to think it is pretty crazy and it's funny too because ballard he kind of says this is a quote again from him he said just in reference to how this would have like experiencing this would have felt like he's like It was probably a bad day. (laughs) (laughs) At some magic moment, it broke through and flooded this place violently. It, meaning the floodwaters from the Mediterranean. (laughs) And a lot of real estate, approximately 150 square kilometers of land went under. 150,000. Oh, sorry, sorry, 150,000. Just notorious amber. I hate numbers. Classic. I see a number and I I think it flooded like 15 square feet. Oh, man. Well, okay. So, again, like I said, like, Ballard has no illusions that he's going to find a mythical arc or anything like that. Yeah. But he does maintain that there is evidence to be found of this civilization that was washed away over 5,000 years ago. Okay. Um, yeah, he's even found pottery. He found wreckage of a boat, <laughs> including a deceased inhabitant, but it didn't actually uh, pan out to the right timeline. Okay. But he is confident that if he keeps searching away, they're going to find the evidence that they're looking for, like, more of it, because they've already got evidence to support Um, and it's actually interesting too, because the Black Sea is kind of a creepy place. It doesn't have a lot of oxygen in the water. Right. And so it actually slows the rate of decay underwater, which preserves so much. So it's kind of great as far as, Mm -hmm. you know, archaeological expeditions and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. As far as like the whole Black Sea deluge theory though, 
there is kind of like ongoing debates about mm -hmm. the sort of catastrophic nature, how sudden it was, how extensive it was, yes. all that kind of stuff. And it does hinge sort of on the geomorphology of this strait since the end of the last glacial age. So this was interesting. This is a quote here. It says, the Black Sea area has been sealed off and reconnected numerous times during the last 500,000 years. So that's hmm. interesting, too, because some people think that the Bos Bos Bosphorus Strait, oh my god, I cannot say that right. Bosphorus? Bosphorus Strait um, either was plugged and then, like, you know, just... Burst. Exactly, yeah. burst. Or maybe it wasn't plugged at all and it has nothing to do with anything you know what i mean hmm. party poopers i say <laughs> to those theorists there <laughs> i i mean so there needed to be a solid obstruction which is what that ryan and Pittman guy the 1997 guys yeah. that wrote the paper right they said that exactly that in order to produce this type of catastrophic flooding you would need a solid obstruction and it must have had a significant height as well in order to allow for such a rise on the cell side um, Man, it's one of those things where it's like, obviously ancient peoples had engineering capabilities and they, they, I mean, even at this point in time, like there would have been some, I mean, people had invented things. So it's kind of interesting to think about maybe somebody would have looked at that and been like, I wonder if that's not going to hold <laughs> or like, you know what I mean? Or like, maybe this just feels like a precarious place to be. You mean like on the other side of the strait? Yeah, like if you like if you had ever traveled or heard stories of people like whoever nomadic peoples and like just seeing the landscape and where mm -hmm. water is mm -hmm. and that it might just look like it's not that it's a precarious place, you know what I mean? Like True. Anyway, that's just a thought. I mean, obviously this is very unpredictable type stuff. Like it's such yeah. massive geologic scale, it's kind of hard to say. It's hard. I really just want to go and see what it actually looks like. Yeah. Like if you're in constant or not Constantinople, if you're in Istanbul and you like can look, can you see across the street? Like how big are we talking right. here? And to me, like maybe if you have events, like, you know, like in the springtime when you get flooding, you get rising waters, you get logs, you get all sorts of um, like solid debris. debris. Exactly. Like, so could this be potentially blocked up by debris over time? And then quite possibly, who knows? I don't know. I'm not an expert. Um, this was another quote though. It says a large part of the academic geologic community also continues to reject the idea that there could have been enough sustained long-term pressure by water from the Aegean. So from the Mediterranean mm -hmm. side to actually dig through a supposed isthmus. So some people think that it was an actual solid land, like an isthmus, so it wouldn't have even had the peninsula, or right, not so peninsula, sorry, the, the actual strait going through. Right, so that they would have actually straight carved out the rock. Yeah, exactly. So that was another idea, too. Hmm. But it's, it's very interesting. There's a lot to it, and I feel like we could even dedicate a whole episode just to talking about that that's we strange. almost could, no mm -hmm. doubt, no doubt. Not today. Not but, today, uh, no. Let's move on to flood myths from around the world. We are just about to hop in to mm -hmm. some flood myths from around the world, and I cannot wait. I've been waiting to talk about this with you guys for a while, ah, and uh, we've too. got some Chinese mythology, yes. some North American mythology. We're heading over to Australia. We're mm -hmm. heading to Finland and some other crazy stuff. Um, but before we do, we have uh, a little break. A little uh, coffee break. A coffee break, courtesy mm -hmm. of Coffee Gator. So uh, take, a, take a sip of coffee, and we'll be right back. <laughs> Are you a coffee fiend like us? Then Coffee Gator is about to become your new best friend. Coffee Gator is creating products that are simple to use, made of quality materials, and have a beautiful aesthetic. 
Oh my god, that pink series is amazing. <laughs> it really is. But of course, there is something for everyone. Coffee Gator will up your coffee game whether you are an instant coffee fan or an espresso addict. Seriously, they've got every accessory under the sun. From stainless steel canisters, pour-over systems, cold brew coffee making kits, and insulated glass mugs, they have the tools you need to make your best cup yet, including helpful tips and tricks on their website. So, simply use promo code QUARK, spelled Q-U-A-R-K, to get 15% off your purchase at coffeegator.com. That's 15% off your purchase using promo code QUARK, spelled Q-U-A-R-K, at checkout. So visit coffeegator.com today. Start drinking better coffee with Coffee Gator. And we're back. Mm -hmm. So... Like I just said, we're heading into some other mythologies from around the world that talk about a very similar event. Cool. And before I even dive right into it, I just want to say, because like the pseudoscientists and the hardcore like believers in the global flood happening all at the same time use this as evidence in and of itself, right? The ubiquitous nature mm -hmm. of flood stories. Mm -hmm. They're everywhere. Mm -hmm. So that must mean there's a global flood. We're not really saying that, but at the same time, yeah. I, d I don't want to say that that's outright pseudoscience. Like when you do see commonalities and similarities in mythologies and in people's oral histories, there's significance to that. There's something tangible in that. Oh yeah. And it speaks um, to more so it, for me, it doesn't speak to exact parallels across cultures, but it does speak to the importance of such events in people's memories exactly. in collective memories. But then also, um, Oh my gosh, what was my other point? Oh, I, I did have another po side point to make before we actually get into the um, into these. Sure. Like you mentioned, like some people will use this as an argument for a global flood event. Yes. Other people will flip that on its head and be like, actually, no, all of these mythologies around the world are from missionaries that have spread the word of the original Genesis. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that, again, I feel is a misinterpretation. Yeah, I agree. But anyways... So we're starting in ancient China and mm -hmm. Chinese mythology, uh, the Gunyu. So it's basically, there's multiple flood stories in Chinese mythology. This one is the most prominent. And this particular flood myth is said to have occurred in and around the time of the rule of this emperor named Yao, Emperor Yao, cool. who some actually believe to have lived to be over a hundred years, in and around a hundred years. So not quite as long as the pre-Diluvian patriarchs, so to speak, mm, but mm -hmm. still kind of in that realm of like, you know, much earlier period of time where people shouldn't have been living to be that old. No. He's living to be into the, into the, the triple dig. He's living to be like three times older than the average. Wasn't it like 30 to Yeah, something like range? that, right? Yeah. Here's where his rule was roughly, um, 2,333 BC to two, 2,234. So, <laughs> We're a few thousand years off from some of these possible other thud, thud, thud. flood myths. <laughs> but it does um, kind of tie into when they were written down, though, as yes. far as the Sumerian version, because they said it was roughly 2400 to 1700 BCE that was right. written. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there could be some discrepancy there. there. Like, did it actually happen much earlier? Yeah, written down, same time. Solidified so, yeah. or consolidated exactly. at this time. So mm -hmm. could this be the same flood? We don't know. But this is how the legend reads. Um, and I actually... This particular, I pulled this from an Ancient Origins article, but this is the actual written legend of Yao. So, okay. After the flooding began, he sought to advance 
He sought the advice of his advisors, the Four Mountains, who told him to appoint his distant cousin Gun to control the floods. So there's a lot of magic and mythology to this story, right? Mm-hmm. Gun accepted this and chose to steal Zarang, so which is basically in in this myth is this self-expanding soil that they used that was given to them from the supreme deity mm. in order to actually build dams to try to prevent this flood. Cool. So it's anyway, like magical soil, right? But of course, they wouldn't hold, and eventually they collapsed into basically this massive deluge, right? Nine years later, but didn't it didn't wipe out all of man. Okay. Nine years later, Emperor Yao resigns in shame, and he appoints another distant relative recommended by the four mountains, these gods, Shun. And Shun becomes co-emperor, reorganizes the kingdom to better deal with the flood, because it was almost seen as this... Not something sent by the gods to punish, mm-hmm. but more of a natural thing that they had to deal with. Like okay. the earth, the powers of the earth, right? <laughs> Almost more of the ideas, the elementals and things like that. Ooh. So he was still unable, to, though, this guy, to hold off the floodwaters. And for four years... Or wait, sorry, how does this go? And then for four years, they continued to rise. So he continued his efforts, claiming that the hard work of the people to build the dams, like basically mm. like slaves, essentially, building dams, dikes, and embankments. And they would eventually gain control of the floodwaters. Um, but how does this end here? I'm sorry, guys. I'm kind of losing my place. The whole point of this is that it's not sent by the gods. So like, what's really interesting about these Chinese flood stories is they're not linked to a deluge of an angry hmm. deity. And we are missing the whole um, arc And there's that missing as well. So, but rather it's like thought to just be of natural causes. But this is interesting though, because it's like, it doesn't get the same treatment as in other cultures potentially, where it's like more mythological, more like, you know, being sent from a God, being a chosen one to build the ark, right? Mm -hmm. Like it is much more terrestrial. Yeah. Much less fantastical. I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. I... I think that the advisors of the four mountains, that's actually quite interesting. And the, the idea that man's um, fixes, right? This idea that the soil that he steals, I'm not sure what yeah. sort of implication in, like, you know, like as far as morality or anything like that, um, mm-hmm. if there's anything to deal with that. But to me, what this speaks to is the futile efforts of man at the forces of nature, right. which kind of plays into Noah and the flood story, where yeah. it's like the evils of man and whatever. But but we don't get that sort of moral implication here. No. It's, and, it, and we don't get the entire wipeout of the world, like the man, like, you know what I mean? Like the whole earth population. No, like it, it's it's not sent for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the Is same... it sent though? It's not really sent. Well, exactly. It's just, con- well... Yeah, exactly. That's the idea. Like, it isn't sent by a god. It just kind of happens. And this sort of shows up in other Eastern traditions, too. So, like, in Hindu belief, in mythology, in their texts, the the uh, Satapatha Brahma, Brahmana? Hmm. Probably not pronouncing that correctly. They mention a great flood story similar to this Chinese one. With an ark, or? No ark. Um, no Noah figure? No Noah figure, so I'm not really, so I decided not to focus on that, basically. Mm-hmm. But, just, just great deluges in Yeah, general. like, just wanted to mention them because it's, it's spread throughout the East, as well as huh. throughout Asia, too. So I wanted to focus on the Australian Aboriginal legends because oh, yeah. they're really, really, really interesting. Before we get into that, though, like, I'm just curious, too. Like, did you get into, like, the, the story starts with after the flooding began. Mm-hmm. So we don't really understand what the cause is. Yeah, it just starts to rain, great rains, and the rivers start oh, okay. to expand so it's a and great swell. Rain. So, again, so coming from the sky, then it's not coming from a 
below, right? The earth chambers, as one guy said, or whatever. You have to imagine that this would be a part of rising sea levels, too, though. This myth, right? Yes, because this is it about... What did you say it was again? It was um, 33 BC. 3300 BC to 30... Sorry. sorry, sorry, 2300 to 2200. Yeah. Oh, dyslexia. Man. A little bit. A little bit dyslexic. Yeah. So, okay. That's interesting, though. I, I do think... Because if we're going to get into the whole idea that this was from the last period of glaciation, which approximately ended about 11,000 years ago, and then you get these slow accumulative melts, I could see that because you know how China is like a lot more, it doesn't have those, you know how like, I'm, 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 I'm looking at the coastline in my head, like, you know, like how like the inlets and everything, like China is a lot more rounded, it doesn't mm-hmm. have a lot of those crazy mountain-like um, features, but maybe it does, though. I'm, I'm just trying to... I, My brain isn't going anywhere right now. Sorry, folks. <laughs> I'm having a dead end, and I'm just, yeah. That's all good. Um, mm. I think we should move into the Australian Aboriginal legends here. Okay. Because there's many stories in the oral tradition of the Australian Indigenous population, which goes back a ridiculously far time. Like, we talked about it even with the North Sentinelese possibly being there for 60,000 plus years, Mm -hmm. similar with the ancient peoples of Australia. Mm -hmm. But their stories tell of rising sea levels, which in fact is supported by geological evidence in Australia. Mm. So again, no written languages. So these Australian tribes, they pass their heritage and culture all through oral tradition, right? And this goes back to post-glacial shorelines, like... They can point to islands that no longer exist and name them for That's when they were cool. there from 20,000 years ago. Um, it's pretty bizarre. <laughs> so what we get in these stories, of course, like I said, is great flooding, changing life as they knew it. And of course, that's going to be something that ends up getting passed down and stays the same. I think that's the key that's really crazy about this is like how a story, like, you know, when you go to a party and you do like the chain story, like you whisper mm. in someone's ear and it goes along the way. These, these stories have stayed the same for 30,000 plus years or more mm-hmm. of oral tradition. It's kind of crazy. Things don't change that much. That is, and that speaks to consistency in the memory, yeah. collective memory. So mm-hmm. this, uh, I pulled this information from The Guardian, but um, really interesting. So uh, Sun, Sunshine Coast University marine geographer, a guy by the name of Patrick Nunn, and the University of New England linguist, Nicholas Reed, they've been working on kind of looking at 21 different indigenous stories in Australia across the continent and trying to sync up the events, uh, like flood events that have occurred between 18,000 and 7,000 years ago when they know the sea level rose by 120 meters. Okay. So they're trying to match up these, these uh, oral traditions and try to tie them together. So the stories all described permanent coastal flooding. Very Mm. significant. In some cases, they actually described times when dry land occupied space now completely submerged by water. Mm -hmm. So, but they still knew of this as if it was a place they could go to. In other stories, they were telling of wading out into islands that can no longer actually be reached at all. Uh And now, or can only be reached by boat. Like they're either, you can't walk to them anymore because, and islands? you can only get to them by boat. Yeah. Or they're just not there anymore. They're oh, submerged. Oh, out to islands. Exactly. Oh, okay. Because see, there's been massive flooding, right? Hmm. I wonder if you could account for some of that um, with just underwater currents that like sweep away sediment over time too, right? Yeah, for sure. And that's sure. how you can get like sandbars, right? Definitely. And then, yeah. Some of that could absolutely be the case mm-hmm. for sure. But the majority of what they're finding is essentially... 
larger spaces than that. Like right, it wouldn't, okay. wouldn't account for And it. the one question I had for you when you first brought this up is like, oh, so if, wait a second, if they're pointing to islands like in the water that are no longer there, mm-hmm. do we have evidence to people, have people gone down and like dive down to see if they can find evidence of, of people living on these submerged yeah, landforms? Yeah, absolutely. Like I don't have any names mm-hmm. right now, but essentially, yeah, like these, these are real landforms and there's hundreds of them off the coast that were there before and were either yeah spots for fishing or just were there were just noticeable landmarks yeah used to be there now Joe it's Bull's not island now it's gone yeah. which is absolutely <laughs> insane to yeah. think like yeah you're not just your great 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 grandfather but how about 50 gen 50 to 100 generations back mm-hmm. you know like it's it's or more it's 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 crazy <laughs> where am i at here okay so yeah, so some of these stories are factual accounts. Like there's one around Port Phillip Bay. So this is near Melbourne. And the indigenous peoples around there talk about the loss of their kangaroo hunting grounds, mm. which actually existed where the bay now exists. And of course, there's bones and remnants of, you know, like their their arrowheads and things like that at the bottom of this bay where it was a dry kangaroo hunting ground for these people okay and they still know of it it's just absolutely insane that's interesting the more i think about it too like i can't remember but years and years ago when i was in a geography class they talked about how a lot of australia i think it was the northwest part of it was actually fully submerged under a sea and didn't emerge until about oh shoot i don't even want to give an estimate because i can't remember but i do Remember that, because, like, what we're talking about here is not, like, a catastrophic flood event that's, like, a big tsunami tidal wave. What we're talking about in this particular case with Aboriginal Australians is permanent, like you said, permanent coastal flooding. So just a general rise in sea levels, like we're kind of seeing today. Yeah, and we're gonna definitely. We're going to see the next 50 to 100 years. They do have some crossovers into the Noah-esque Genesis stories and stuff like that. So, like, some of it is seen, of course, as being allegorical. Mm-hmm. So, like, the ancestral their ancestral deities being angered by potentially, you know, misbehavior of the group and punishing them by sending, sending, you know, getting rid of their kangaroo, you know, territory Ah. by sending the sea to swallow the land. So the moral element. Right. So there Mm. is moral elements to it. There's another example um, from an 1859 report that was actually produced for the state government uh, in in the area, which which state would that be? What's uh, oh my gosh, we've done so many episodes in Australia. State of Victoria. Would it be Victoria? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> let's just chuck it out there. Wes Wesley, you can let us. Oh, know. near Melbourne, I think Melbourne's in Victoria. Is it? I think so. Okay. So yeah, so the state government described tribal descendants recalling when the Bay of Port Phillip was actually a kangaroo ground. So this was the official document that when they did, they first like sort of like made, kept a record of what these people were saying in 1859, which is actually kind of neat. And then, of course, looked at it later, later on. But uh, so these peoples known as the Garingeri people, they tell stories of a character called Nugrundri, Mm -hmm. super similar, but which is essentially this ancestral character that is just super, super mythological. And in one of their stories, this character chased chased his wives until they sought refuge by fleeing this kangaroo island, (laughs) uh, which they could do mostly by foot at the time. Um, But he angrily rose the seas, turning the women into rocks that now jut out of the water between the island and the mainland, as the legend Mm. goes, assuming this dark tale is based on true, (laughs) like, geographical 
landmarks, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah, but it was originated at a time when seas were about 100 feet lower than they are today. Interesting. So, which would date the story to around <laughs> 10,000 years ago. 10,000 years ago? Okay, cool. You know what that reminds me of is, like, the uh, Moses parting the Red Sea kind of yeah. thing. And, and the idea that... Because, like, the way... Sorry, the, he, this Nugurandari character chased his wives until they sought refuge by fleeing to this island. So they're on the mainland, they flee to an island, which is one of these islands that you can wade to, right? Okay. Exactly. So they're wading towards it by foot. Yes. When he decides to angrily make the seas rise. So he's right. almost like a demigod. Seemingly. In a way. And this is obviously kind of similar to mm. the Genesis. Like you're someone's pissed off. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's interesting. But I like this, how the women were turned into rocks that now jut out of the water. Yeah. So, oh my gosh, what does that remind you of? It reminds you of the Watchers From and Noah. Noah. Very much so. The God's angels. a dick, man. I you don't like God. Well, the Old Testament God is... <laughs> I'm the... going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were just joking from the... Uh, from we, we watched an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia oh when they're on God. the ship. Oh. Yeah, I've been putting battery acid on the back of Frank's uh, cross to make him, make him think he's a demon. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> and Frank's like, ha, I might be Satan. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my oh, it's god! It's too good. I love Frank Reynolds. Yeah. Um, got a little sidetracked there. Let's There's, talk about the Tiwi Islands. Sure, because this was another one. There's a whole bunch, but this is another one I pulled up. Mm-hmm. So this is another group of Indigenous ab- Aboriginal Australians, and they talk about the mythological creation of Bathurst and Melville Islands that are off Australia's northern coastline. And this is from a, an article by the, a guy by the name of John Upton from mm. the Scientific American Journal. It's just well, I've heard of that journal. guy. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay, so they used to... Okay, where am I at here? <laughs> they Okay, so they told a story, mythological creation... Yeah, okay, so of Bathurst and Melville Islands off Australia's northern coastline where they live. So the story, the legend is essentially of an old woman is said to have crawled between the islands, followed by a flow of water. And it is interpreted as a settling of what are now the islands followed by a subsequent flooding around them, hmm. which the researchers calculated would have occurred around 80 to, like 8,200 to 9,600 years ago, hmm. according to this article with, by John Upton. So about 7,000 BC. I feel like this, like, a woman crawling between the islands and stuff like that, There's, I feel like there's almost, like, some uh, metaphors of, like, birth there, mm, potentially, and, like, creation yeah. and, like, things oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, definitely. That actually ties in quite beautifully to uh, one of the Finnish myths that I'm going to bring up in a second here. Oh, okay. I, a lot of this, though, like, I feel like we need to reaffirm <laughs> reaffirm the notion that all of these, because some of these are more so just creation stories. Um, water is centrifugal to a lot of creation stories, obviously. Yeah. Um it's almost like the embryonic fluid in some mythologies, that type of thing, right? <laughs> if you will, sure. Exactly. Like, even of the world, right? It's the embryonic fluid of the world. Like, if you want to think about it like that. Yeah. Um, metaphorically speaking. Uh, but the important part to reaffirm for me is the fact that none of these were imparted by Christian missionaries onto these no. indigenous groups. These are from their traditions. Exactly. And I just, I get bothered when Christians try and take off. <laughs> 
all the credit for people's creation <laughs> stories. And just nah, makes me mad. So it anyways, happened a long time before. It really did. Yeah. Copyright. So this is cool, right? Because this again, Tiwi peoples. This this is a very beautiful creation story. Yeah. I I really appreciate. So that. we get these oral traditions talking about a geological record. Yes. Like that's the key here, right? Rising. Um, it's waters. not just the story that's been changed and passed down from culture to culture, like we've mm-hmm. seen with some of these other flood stories, right? Going from Samaria into Babylonian into the Genesis story, like this is before that even potentially or in and around the same time but not related mm-hmm. it's 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 similar but not related so i see this as a difference between the styles of storytelling in some cases like that's one part of it and the possibility of this actually being the same flood but dramatized in some accounts around the world less so in others potentially mm-hmm. like when we are talking about the chinese um yes b- exactly. believing it to just be mm-hmm. these these natural occurrences of the world Whereas in these other yeah. stories, it is it's it is God sending. We have to get rid, wipe out man because mm-hmm. it is punishment. There's moral morality attached to this. Just going back to that Chinese thing too, I feel like I didn't really reiterate myself properly. Where I was referring to the coastlines, like you know the different geologic features, whatever. But a good analogy that I just thought of right now is related to the tides. And like you can, okay, say you have a very narrow inlet or bay or something where you have extreme fluctuations in the tide because of the way the geography is, right? It's tight. And so you get more rise, more uplift action with the tide changes, as opposed to an area that's more open, more broad, you don't get that dramatic or you don't get the perception of how dramatic the change is, right? Exactly. So that, to me, again, lends itself to, say, in the Chinese legend, almost seemed like it was more like an ongoing nuisance. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. This is just getting worse and worse and worse, but it's not like it's all of a sudden, like, catastrophic, the entire civilization's right. wiped out, as would have been the case around the coastal areas of the freshwater Black Sea area before it was the Black Sea. Exactly. Right? Okay, so that, to me, yeah, again, I feel like this is all very compelling. That, I feel like it is, yeah. too, and... And to touch, like, and yeah, like you mentioned the Black Sea again, I want to, before I move into this, to the North American legends, because that's the next stage we're, we're going to touch on here, but just this idea of when we're looking so far back in time, that the idea of a flood lasting for 40 days or 150 days is a blip on the scale, right? Mm. The idea of when did this flood happen versus this flood, if they're 400 years apart, when we're looking back 10,000 years, that's basically happening at the same time mm-hmm. more or less mm-hmm. like when you look at it on like a timeline exactly you know what i mean and so just the regions themselves would account for the differences exactly right? the flow of water so there like, may <laughs> very well have been various catastrophic floods not necessarily happening at the same time but Insane. all involved in similar the same se- reasons, the same reasons. Mm-hmm. exactly mm-hmm. exactly same and if one happened 400 years earlier and there was sea level rise and catastrophic whatever from that. And then another happened, right? Like 400 mm-hmm. years later, there's still the remnants of that first flood happened. Like, yeah. right? Still high sea level, still water where mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been before potentially. Exactly. And then you get another one and another one. Tsunami oh. over here. And then flood what if, over there. Again, on top of that, right? What if these cultures are isolated, but then hundreds of years later, it's like they come into contact. They have these mutual myths about a great flood and then it roughly matches up like like you said like maybe it wasn't the exact but when you're looking at it from the past it's like oh that happened to you guys hundreds of years ago that happened to us hundreds of years ago it might have been 300 years ago versus 400 years ago but it's still hundreds of years ago and therefore they can make that mutual connection exactly i'm not saying that actually happened but it could be a possibility too well i think and again greater yeah. consolidation of the legends and greater authenticity piled onto them because mm-hmm. of that definitely mm-hmm. yeah. absolutely 
So, okay, let, let me talk a little bit about some Native American legends then, because, mm-hmm. again, we're way further across the pond here from the Mediterranean, where we started out talking about these. And they're really interesting, but there's a million of them. I'm not going to talk about all of them. I just want to list a few here <laughs> just to give some perspective, right? So, like, there's Algonquin stories about the legendary flood caused by slaying of evil water spirits. Mm-hmm. There's Mi'kmaq legends about the flooding of the earth caused by the weeping of the sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ojibwe legends about the cultural hero rebuilding the world after a great flood. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, Cree legends about flooding and the renewal of the earth. Again, same, oh, yeah. same premise, same message as with the Noah flood and the Genesis flood. Yeah, um, rebirth. Like, let's yeah. see. I mean, the, and, and the list goes on and on. What I wanted to touch on was a particular Salish great flood myth. And the reason is because um, the Salish coastal peoples are from uh, BC, uh, <laughs> all down through the Oregon and Washington coast, but are... Um, yeah, close, close to close us to here. Close to us, yeah. Um, lots of varying different language groups and sort of subgroups within the, the Salish the Salish peoples. But this was specifically a story about Mount Cowichan, which Yay. is on Vancouver Island. That's where my family lives. And uh, yeah, right in the neck of the woods of Amherst family. So we thought it'd be cool to mention this one. So essentially... It basically goes that obviously long before missionaries, like Amber's been saying, had the opportunity to impose any other type of message or Mm -hmm. story, there were already these Noah-like flood legends in the Cowichan Valley. So basically it goes along the lines of that the people quarreled because hunting territories and food was becoming scarce. So very much like the story of Noah in the movie, like, humans were starting to turn on each other things mm, weren't things lack of resources weren't great. So, yeah that's interesting so people were skilled at making fine canoes and paddles from cedars and clothing from baskets and from bark and in their dreams wise men would basically tell them of the future very similar to the noah story like they would have bad dreams that kept coming to them over and over again and these dreams warned these you know higher ups in the village of a great flood Mm-hmm. exactly like the Noah story. Very cool. So this troubled the wise men in the community, and they found that they had all dreamed the same thing. Um, they And then the rain starts to come. So the rivers start to rise. Obviously, this is something very real, right? Mm-hmm. They were very much afraid and called a council to hear about all these dreams and what they could do to try to deal with it. So they decided, they decided to come together one day to build a great canoe. By a great Aww. raft, by by tying their many canoes together, and they were skilled canoe makers. Mm. So this was their solution. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the people agreed, but others in the legend laughed. didn't didn't agree with what they didn't believe that it was coming. Right? Mm-hmm. Didn't believe it was real, a real deluge, so to speak. <laughs> so, but anyway, very much like the Noah story again. Some people build it, some don't. They work over many many years to fashion these canoes together. And during that time, people were working on the raft. Those who did not believe in the dreams were basically idle and laughed at these people. Soon after it was ready, the raindrops started to fall even more so. (laughs) The rivers overflowed, the valleys were completely flooded, and the people climbed to the top of Mount Cowichan to avoid this great flood because soon they would be underwater. But again, those who had believed in the dreams took... took food to the raft, and they and their families climbed in as the waters rose, and the rest did not. <laughs> so it's basically exactly the same as the Noah story, with the exception of the animals. Yeah, the animals. Okay, that's interesting. And the whole idea that it's like an open raft, kind of with like... Right. But it does, 
um, correspond to their technologies yeah. and what they had it there. Here's the, let me end it on this though. So as the waters began to go down after a time and finally the raft was grounded on the top of Mount Cowichan. Hmm. Very much like Ararat. Yeah. Right? And then they would exit as the water continued to recede and rebuild their homes in the valley that had been washed clean. Huh. It's very convenient that they're ending up on the highest peak, so it would have been the first landform that actually had appeared, right? To me, I always go back to the idea that, it, well, at least with the Genesis version, how Noah is instructed to build a ship without oars, paddles, anything to steer it with. Yeah. And then what if you're... <laughs> To see, and then you see the mountain, you see the land appearing in the distance, you want to get to it. It's like the classic Wilson. Wilson. (laughs) You just get further and further away. Wes uh, commented on on our Facebook group about that in like (laughs) something along those lines. I was like, yeah, they wouldn't even be able to get there if they wanted to. I know. It's like you just see it and you're just like, oh, see ya. You know, (laughs) the other point, you know, the other, another good point, I wish I could give him a shout out. I can't remember the name. Someone in, in our forum on Facebook as well made the comment about how why would there ever be remnants of an ark even if there even if it did exist oh, yeah. it would have been repurposed yeah like they they had to restart and rebuild brand new mm-hmm. they're not going to be like well yeah there's some good 2 by 4s over here but you know what let's just chop that tree down and replane them and start exactly. from scratch or even if you just dissembled it and used it for like firewood you know what i mean <laughs> anything like, right anything yeah. you would have used it for something you would think that god would have uh, designated a purpose <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm gonna cheat. You, you sound now. like the governor, the governor of Florida. That's his answer. Uh, for everything. Let's just pray about this. Oh, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> does that kind of wrap it up on the North American end of things? Yeah, or? I mean, like I said, there's so many. Um, it does. It, I'm coming back to North America in my in the theories section in a second here, mm-hmm. but that's that's it for the myths. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I kind of want to touch on the Finnish flood legends. Okay. And. This one specific national sort of treasure to the Finnish people, which is called the Kalvala. Cool. And all this came to us um, thanks to Paula, like we said, over in the forum. Mm -hmm. We're really glad to have her send over her two cents because, like, really this, like she said, she later I was messaging her and she was like, oh, dear, I think I opened up Pandora's box for you, (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of true, but I appreciate it. And she sent over quite a few different resources, links, and everything. And one of them was describing specifically this Kalevala song. Or it's kind of like a verse structure. So, like, their own sort of... um, I don't even... I'm not really... Oh, what's it called when you have, like, a... um, like a meter. Oh, yeah. Like a... Yeah. So, it's called the Kavala meter. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like... It's a type of poetry. Sure. But anyways, I loved this. This is describing what the Kalevala is. It says, Kalevala meter incantations are verbal magic, which was a part of people's everyday lives and activities. And I just thought that was so magical. It's like, it reminds me of all of our, like, Gollum stuff and just, like, practical magic. Absolutely. And and the occult and everything. And just the power of words. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Big time. Okay, so there was this one resource she sent over. It was a book written by this guy, Simo Parpola. And he uh, he wrote a book called The Etymological Dictionary of the Sumerian Language. Okay. Mm. And in it, um, this guy, Parpola, argues that the Sumerian dialect actually has ties to, quote, the Uralic language family and is distantly related also to many other languages currently spoken in Europe, Western Asia, and North Africa. Weird. Okay, so Uralic languages, I kind of had to look into this because I'm not very familiar, but there is 
a big bulk of these Uralic language speakers in the Finnish area and then also further in the east, like in the Russian sort yes. of area. Yeah. Like not Sib is it Siberia? I don't know if that's far. Uh yeah, there definitely would be some in absolutely. Mm -hmm. Some yeah, in northern Siberia and stuff like that for sure. And so Paula kind of wrote that while this Parpola guy is a pretty esteemed scholar, this was kind of controversial and he was criticized pretty heavily from a linguistic point of view. <laughs> yeah. But she says, again, right, just to look at the geography, there is more or less a constant water route via the Tigris or the Euphrates to the Caspian Sea. And then in the Caspian Sea, at the north end, there is actually the start of a river called River Ural, which ends in the mountain Urals, yes. which is where there are these small pockets of the Uralic languages that can still be found. Okay, so yeah, so northern end of the Caspian, so it could potentially, like, I was trying to look at it, when you look on Google Earth, you can't even, they don't even have, like, an actual point for the Ural River, but you can see it extends from the north end of the Caspian, and there seems to be a few different tributaries, one that goes sort of more to the east, and one that goes more towards, um, like, Finland and that sort of neck of the woods. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so this actually ties into one of the... Um, ideas that the art could have ended up near the Caspian Sea region, and that came back yes. to the those sacred mountains I talked about the oh, the Iranian ones. What was that called again? The Kur. Ooh, we'll have to go back up in the notes here. Yeah, I'd have to go back. But anyways, yeah. So it does tie into a possible location that some people think the art could have ended up. Okay. <laughs> and so Paula writes like, well this is kind of far-fetched and, you know, it, it's a fun thought to think that perhaps Finn, Finnish, like, Uralic people could have actually descended from Sumerians, right, which had this original flood story. Right. Um, and you do get stories in Finnish culture of this epic flood. And, okay, so this, let's get into some of this. Okay. Yeah, this okay. is really cool. They've got Finnish flood myths and creation myths. All right, Sweet. so I want to go into the creation myth first of all, because this ties into what you were talking about with the Tiwi people. Was it the Tiwi? And they had the, the, the woman with the yeah, islands and stuff. Swimming and through. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so this creation story includes the idea of the earth being made by a woman named Ilmatar, who is actually the daughter of the heavens. And this is me. I have a very um, primary grasp on this. I don't... <laughs> expert by any means <laughs> but anyways so the story goes that this girl the daughter of the heavens came down to swim in the waters below heavens so at this point there's only the heavens and then the water below okay after swimming for about 700 years a bird comes to her and lays six eggs on her knees and it's kind of weird it's, it kind of goes that like the there was some sort of heat being produced by the eggs or between her knees or something okay and eventually her knees split open and the eggs fall and create the earth and the sky and these are created by the two halves of the shell so you get earth sky and then the sun is actually the yolk and the moon and the stars are the embryo okay and so what does this speak to again right this is a very um maternalistic view of the creation of the world right the knees very splitting much so. very much like a bursting absolutely um, mother earth so to speak yeah and then also included is the story of the first man and his, oh my gosh it, i'm just gonna refer to him as Vainamoinen, even though enough. there's a million different punctuation things in there <laughs> <laughs> to worry about and he was essentially created by ilmatar the same daughter of the heavens yes and this first man, his uh, the father, his father, sorry, is the sea. 
I thought that was cool, right? Because okay. what else could it be, really? It's right. the mother and then the seat. Again, right, this whole embryonic fluid, water, kind of whatever. Yeah. So Ilmatar is essentially responsible for the creation of land out of the seas, um, and she kind of contours the shapes with her footsteps, and she also creates this first man. Uh, but then this man, Vinamoinen, swims to reach a land, but... This being sterile, he asks for the help of the great bear celestial, which I'm not even sure what that is. And then a boy named Samsa Pervoinen is sent to him, and he sows the flora onto the ground. So it's almost like the creation of the Garden of Eden. Okay, yeah, totally. Which is kind of cool. But then, so that was kind of like his first sort of myth. There's a lot of stories with this Vinamoinen kind of person. Uh, but looking at the flood myths in particular, you find one that describes how there's like this flood of blood Ooh, blood. Which immediately jolted to mind that Alt J song. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Flood of Blood. <laughs> Anyways, and there was a quote here. It's uh, This is from one of the myths of Finland. I don't know which one exactly. But it says here, Like a river now runs the blood, like a stream is the bleeding, covering the berry twigs, hiding all the heathers. Interesting. A flood of blood. Love that. I don't know. I just love that so much. Very cool. <laughs> I actually asked her to look around and kind of dig around for me about that because I don't really know how this ties in, like what the reason for the blood would be. But there was reference to this one story of this Vinamoinen guy and how he injures himself and creates this flood of blood from his ankle, I think it was. Well, if you recall in the Noah film version, too, there's, in his vision, he's standing in blood. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. That's very true. So there's another interesting crossover, potentially. That's very true. Apparently, in Scandinavian and Samoyed mythologies and stuff, it can be water that covers the earth, but sometimes it's this blood. And what they interpret this as is, like, it's the blood that's considered to be the first blood of sacrifice, which had to happen to connect to, together all the peoples of the earth. So I guess that kind of answers my question about yeah. the blood. But again, right, where's this blood coming from? <laughs> yeah, whose blood is this? I don't know. Um, apparently, though, in Scandinavian and Finnish myths, um, the death of the old world is connected to the death of giants. So we Ooh. got another sort of hearkening back Mythological to, connection here. I love it. What are those giants called again from uh, the giants of the biblical... Forrest always talks about them in Astonishing Legends, and I'm always like... Oh, <laughs> man, I'm drawing lots of blanks today. I can't rem- yeah. I cannot recall. But this is cool, right? Because in... Um... Oh, right. So, yeah. So, in Kalevala, Finland, only one giant is saved, which is a Jotunheim. Jotunheim. The Jotun, right? And so, all of mankind is actually a descendant of him. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, there's another version here where apparently in some of these myths, it's the killing of the primordial beast, like a wild boar or something that causes this blood flood. Hmm. Or sometimes it's flowing from the roots of a gigantic fallen tree, as in Siberian myths. Hmm. Bizarre. So there's, man, there's endless, endless mm-hmm. myths when it comes to this kind of stuff. It is. And oh, this one in particular, this Finnish one about Vinamoinen building a boat on a mountain. So this is, qu- Okay. Quote here. He does it secretly with the help of a god who makes the axe strokes silent. So no one can hear him, I guess. Then the devil makes the axe hit Vinamoinen's knee and the blood starts to flow. However, due to his magical skills, the blood is stopped and the boat is finished. 
In the search of the magical blood stopping words, uh, Vinamoinen also learns the spell at which he is also able to finish building the boat. <laughs> Seal grease is used for caulking, and a canopy was made from fish hide. However, this boat is not used to save mankind, but to take Vinamoinen to Poijaha or Poha po, Poyoha. Anyways, Pohola. Pohola. It's spelled P-O-H-J-O-L-A. Sorry to all you Finnish people out there and everyone else that can pronounce that. Pohola. <laughs> yeah. So that's cool too, because there's another story that actually connects this Vinamoinen character to another flood story, where essentially he lands on the on the new shore, which is the lands of Pohola. I'm going to say Pohola. That, yeah. that makes most sense. Silent J, right? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> and then this is where, again, mankind begins again. Okay. So, gotcha. yeah. So, Paula, she kind of alluded to all of these different things where you get stories of a, yeah, a Noah-like figure, a great flood, a restart of sorts. An and ark. An ark. Exactly. Yeah. So, I thought that was really fun. And this whole, like, flood of blood element is just another really cool oh, thing. Oh, it definitely yeah. adds a, a hardcore factor to the legend, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, thanks, Paula. We really appreciate that. Totally, yeah. And if you have anything you. else to add or any corrections at all, please get us. But... Where are we going with this now? Are we going to theories? I think we're we're about ready to do that. You know, part three, we're coming down to the wire here. We've Mm -hmm. talked about a lot Mm -hmm. um, in these three episodes, and we're not going to go crazy with the theory section because there's not too too much more. We've honestly we've we've expounded on a lot of these ideas, right? Um, But essentially, again, just to reiterate, like one of these the main cruxes of this is like the idea of did this all happen at the same time or in and around the same time? Mm -hmm. Because that would make for a global deluge, right? That would make for this global flood. That is very real. And these characters could be real. Yes. Um, not to say that we're arguing that all of mankind except for eight people would have lived. Of course not. Of course not. <laughs> but um, even if the perception was that, yeah. that's significant it is. to mankind, right? If you're those eight people on a mountaintop and sh- there's another 50 million of those eight people, right? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Everywhere, but you just Scattered. don't know they exist. That's still significant. You can't epic. you can't bust out the cell phone and uh, be like, <laughs> "Hey, Facebook. you guys still around?" But um, <laughs> I I did come across some really cool evidence in North America that I wanted to talk about. So there was this guy by the name of David Montgomery who's a geomorphologist. So he studies landforms and how they basically came to be, and. He makes references to two different things that are across the world. First of all, the first reference he makes is in Tibet, so I'm not going straight to North America. But this is where he got really interested in this idea of a great flood. Mm -hmm. So he was on this expedition in Tibet, and he's basically at this super high altitude, and he finds these very strange land formations, evidence of a massive flood high atop the Himalayas. And he thought, could this tie into both potentially Chinese mythology, Hindu mythologies, obviously local Tibetan mythologies of a great flood. But could could this be evidence of this widespread Eastern belief in this happening, right? Mm -hmm. So much higher than ever expected, he found what what he described as quiet water deposits Hmm. on a massive scale. So flat terraces, you know, large mounds of gravel, basically the, what you would find as sediments underwater, right? Um, so not not remnants left by a raging river, but re- remnants left by quiet water. It's like a resting water. Resting water. So mm-hmm. either massive glacial glacial lake that burst through, like we've been talking about in other potential scenarios, that mm-hmm. in in, the, in a in a localized deluge inundates the whole thing. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what I found most interesting about this about his trip to Tibet was that at the end of it, he was talking to monks there. 
that believed in this great flood. And they're looking at the geological, same geological evidence he's looking at, but they view it completely differently because they're not scientifically trained, right? Okay. But his perspective was essentially that science and myth are really just two sides of the same coin. Yeah. It really is just coming, <laughs> comes down to your perception. Oh, it Perception totally. is reality. It, exactly. Or I feel like that's what this whole series has been about. <laughs> right. Anyway, so he, he would go on to be super fascinated in similar type evidence in North America. I ended up pulling it from a different article. This is from National Geographic, written mm-hmm. by a guy named Glenn Hodge. In the myth, or sorry, Hodges. <laughs> I'm, shout out to Carl Hodge, our, yeah. uh, our old poli sci professor. Carl. That's where I pulled that from just now. Did um, you know that Carl from The Walking Dead is dead? <laughs> so, sorry, died in that show. Anyways, yeah, in random. the show. Oh wow, rando. Anyways, anyway. okay. So this is from National Geographic. This is insane, you guys. So in the middle of eastern Washington, essentially in what it would be a desert that gets eight inches of rain a year, stands what was once the largest waterfall in the world. So three miles wide, 400 feet high, 10 times the size of Niagara Falls. This was absolutely massive. So plunges into the pools at his base that were enormous. It's just an immense flow of water. And today there's absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. So 16,000 square miles where there's hundreds of other dry waterfalls, canyons, you know, without rivers that would have actually been able to carve them out. Mm, This is Washington. Yeah. I'm thinking like Utah, there's a lot of like formerly glaciated and and watered landscapes. There's some interesting stuff there too. Mm. And again, very much like in the Tibetan region, mounds of gravel as tall as skyscrapers, deep holes in the bedrock where entire city blocks could get swallowed up. Jeez. Um, Insane. Countless oddly placed boulders. That to me speaks to glaciation. As the glacier melts, it leaves these. It does. Yeah, all these different sized rocks as they were kind of uh, were accreted into the original Mm -hmm. glacier. Right. So, but some, but but again, that can be misleading because we've got boulders placed by glaciers potentially, but then you've got other areas where there's weird land formations where the effects of water could have happened more quickly more rapidly mm-hmm. you know what i mean yeah i'm curious like what where, how is he dating this like where does he have a does he have a date well let me just keep okay, going sorry, sorry, so yeah. okay I'm so <laughs> basically i'm gonna come back okay so i'm gonna go i'm going back in time here to 1909 because this is when all of this <laughs> stuff <in> the DeLorean. <laughs> that's that that glenn hodges is writing about modern day was first sort of started to be speculated on in the early turn of the century okay so there's this guy named harley brett's he was a Seattle high school teacher, hmm. and he ended up, um, he was super fascinated with these land formations. He u- visited the University of Washington to see these geological surveys to try to get an idea of what the hell is going on here. He would eventually get his PhD in geology from the University of Chicago because he was so interested in this stuff, and he would go on to study this region called the Scablands in eastern Washington. Um, Basically, the only possible explanation for these strange formations was that there had to have been some sort of a massive flood, is mm-hmm. what he came to the conclusion of. Hmm. His critics were, there's a lot of people against him, um, but a lot of people supported what he was saying too. This was a quote from him. A debacle which slept the Columbia Plateau, ripping soil and rock from the landscape, carving canyons and cataracts in a matter of days. All other hypotheses meet fatal objections, is what he wrote in a 1923 paper. Okay. So... Pretty, pretty like, you know, 
hardcore in his beliefs. I wonder if he's right? accounting for the movements of glaciers, though, because that can definitely account for some of what he's talking about there. No, and, and they are. And the that's, ripping of rock he, and soil from the yeah, landscape. And he's not abrading. saying that that's not a thing, but mm-hmm. this has now been confirmed in 2019. Okay. okay. He believed that there was 40 Ice Age floods over the Scablands that could have accounted for these land formations. Mm-hmm. It's now been proven that there was actually 80 massive deluges that happened over this period okay. from a from a from basically yeah ice melting reforming melting reforming uh, just through these periods of glaciation sorry these scablands in particular are these on in washington? eastern washington in washington okay you got it because i'm just trying to imagine um it says ending roughly thirteen thousand years ago so that's mm-hmm. yeah again the last ice age i'm melting whatever i'm because he does mention the Cordillian ice sheet. Obviously, mm-hmm. he's well familiar with that. I'm trying to imagine how far south that ice sheet extended. And again, right, if the landscape he's talking to would have actually rested underneath that mile-long sheet of ice, or if it would have been outside of the sheet of ice and then experienced the flood waters from that sheet of ice. You know what I mean? Right. So it would have been like, was there, was it covered in ice or was it not? Is kind of my question. Hmm. Does it matter? It kind of <laughs> like, does. It kind of does because, because, right, because then it would be a case where, yes, you are getting a, a not a marine, so you're getting a watered landscape. So underwater landscape that's forming underneath of a glacier versus, say, a deluge coming in the form of, like, a great tsunami wave coming down at you kind of thing. You know what I mean? Okay, but that's exactly what he's describing happened. So basically yeah, saying okay. that this would have been a very similar situation to the Black Sea, where is essentially okay. an ice dam being created. Right? Where would the dam have formed? So these meltwaters would have been formed in the mountains and then eventually released, like with debris and everything mm. else being built up into it. So it's like essentially like they... So Cadam, Cad, so this is. I'm just on Wikipedia now, just to try to get some more perspective on the description. So, cataclysm, cataclysmic floods repeat, repeatedly unleashed when large glacial lakes were repeatedly drained and swept across eastern Washington down the Columbia River plateau. Mm-hmm. So, between eighteen thousand and thirteen thousand years ago, some okay. even argue even more recently, which would put us right in the area where the ancient indigenous populations of Washington were chilling, doing their thing. Mm-hmm. Like we've talked about the silks people being around exactly. the Okanagan Lake so like, 13,000 That does answer ago. my question then because originally what I kind of had pictured in my head was like a great freaking ice sheet on everything. But at this point, it had already receded. It wasn't a big ice sheet covering all of North America. It was literally just in the high up mountainous areas. And as they were melting more and more is when you get these floods so that's why you're saying that there's like been 80 floods yes exactly okay and when this when these would have happened these each individual floods the description from this nat geo is essentially that portland's skyline in oregon and all of the rest of eastern washington would be completely submerged by floodwaters so floods of epic proportion be it like (laughs) portland is a big city let's just say that (laughs) Um, i don't know how tall the tallest building in portland is but uh yeah, it's that's pretty, that's pretty catastroph- catastrophic, right? That's so if cool. you've got this happening over in North America, mm-hmm. you've got something similar happening in the Black Sea, whether they're within hundreds or thousands of years of each other, we're, we've tried to nail down. It's pretty tough. It is. Then Just, you've yeah. got other indigenous myths from other coastal peoples in North America and other places mm-hmm. in the world. Could be from tsunamis, earthquakes happening around the same time. Because you know what I kind of thought, too, that we haven't brought up specifically is the compounding element or factor of other geologic scenarios, right? Like like an earthquake, 
what if an earthquake was actually the cause that disrupted or dislodged that, like, we're t- now I'm going back to the Black Sea region with that one particular strait, where maybe an earthquake event, because that is along three separate um, fault lines, as we uncovered in yeah. our Sea People's um, series, but, or episode, so the series or the episode, yeah. but again, right, like, what if something like that was the catalyst for that epic flood. Exactly. And again, right, what if you get these dislodgings of things and geologic features that had things in place and then all of a sudden it's boom, it's all... Right. It's just like... It's like Pandora's box. It really is. <laughs> and what we've got here, now that we're, we're down to the end here, folks, mm-hmm. is essentially proof. We've We've given you guys proof that these massive catastrophic floods did happen. Um, it's definitively true. Mm-hmm. It's just the question of whether or not the myths can be really all tied together into the same way and mm-hmm. yeah how how connected in time the timeline yeah you can go so many different angles with that like we've had obviously the creationist or not creationist but like christian uh, missionaries just try and take credit for all of it and be like oh no no it's just because we disseminated the truth of god to all these people and they've just picked it up in their own ways mm-hmm. and no, appropriated no. or disappropriated or whatever like you know almost like the pagan element that sure. type of thing but i think what i th- honestly my conclusion is that Water is a powerful thing. Water speaks to people in so many different ways, whether it is in a catastrophic way or in a creationist way. You know what I mean? Like the negative and the positive and how these will stay, remain in collective human memory for long periods of time. Very, very long time. That we are very much at the mercy of the natural world. (laughs) That's kind of my conclusion. Um, Do you have a conclusion or any uh, comments, favorite theories, wrap-up thoughts, anything? I guess to wrap it up, I am most interested in the idea of people still searching for an ark. And today we talked about this, there possibly being some very other, some likely locations of a potential arc um, that people just mm-hmm. haven't really looked at or that we don't get in the documentaries and we don't get in the these search Sears stories, the world, right? The others, they are the uh, Iranian yeah. one, the, the Armenian folk herders that are basically saying that it's up there still. Exactly. It's, it's right. there. Oh, and there was another one that we didn't actually mention, but I can't remember if it was the Armenians or somewhere else but there was these local tribesmen that essentially said that the ark is there but it it's meant to be unseen it's not meant to be found right. therefore it remains hidden you know it's funny you say that because i was actually going to bring that up this idea that yeah like even if it's yeah like yeah it could could be la- yeah well <laughs> there's <laughs> that too <laughs> but yeah just this idea that it's sacred right like mm-hmm. so that yeah the, the, these very remote peoples that do know of it mm-hmm. <laughs> don't touch it because of that reason i think that that's interesting but the question of it being the noah from genesis or a different figure that's what's interesting to me mm-hmm. um if we do end up finding an ark mm-hmm. or or evidence of one how are i mean obviously it's going to get latched on to the, to the genesis story even if it is from something so different um, just the power of, um, people writing history down, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, even if it is just made up, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. and it's really hard to say one way or the other at this point, it I really want is. there to be an arc. I've never been a religious person. I am mm. not, I'm, I'm agnostic, but I yeah. do want, would you want to go visit Mount Judy with me? hundred percent. Mount Judy. Apparently it's there was actually a monastery that was built by a Christian sect. They're called Nestorians and they've referred to this monastery as the cloister of the ark and it is on Mount Judy. So really? they built it in the early 1900s. Wow. Actually it might not be there anymore. I don't know. I wonder. Ooh, I'll have to check in on that. Do a little follow up. <laughs> it's been a little bit rocky in that region. <laughs> but honestly, at the end of the day, I believe that there was a global flood in the sense that a lot of these happened at the same time. I believe that 
all of these stories are um, products of human interaction with glacial melt periods. Absolutely. That's my, my, my two cents. Which is crazy because that is, that is the end of the, that is such a long time ago, right? This isn't an era when we didn't think people should be connected with certain other groups or trade, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like there could have even been some transoceanic contact Mm. involved in these spreading of myths together. Right. Really? You're know. going there? Who I'm knows? going the exact opposite. What? I'm not, I'm not, I don't think any of that, Greg, because then it what kind of lends about? itself you... to the idea that, that these aren't, these aren't, they, they don't have homes within the cultures that they're in. No, like of that course they do. From... But inevitably, you know, 10,000 years ago, when you have a, a group spread and then they, you know, they end up communicating and talk about their mutual histories and stuff. And then they realize a flood happened there, a flood happened here. There's some, there's correlations. Oh, so you're not saying, there's correlations okay. to be okay. made there. I thought you were saying that these are the same stories being picked up by different cultures. <laughs> well, no, I, I, although we did make that argument at the beginning, right? Inevitably, that was the case for Sumerian to Babylonian yes. to Genesis. That's one version. Yeah, right? exactly. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably a good place to end it then. I think so too. We want to know what you guys thought of all this. Uh, we're coming down to the end of a uh, novel length series seemingly looking yeah at thanks the for now. sticking with us guys we really appreciate it and um a shout out to our producer charlene yeah. ramler thank you so much for all that you do and all our patreon supporters yes and you can visit us over on our uh, patreon page and check out what we do we'd love for you to join us uh patreon.com forward slash mm-hmm. into the portal where else can you find us amber well we're always on uh, twitter at into the portal one as well as our instagram into the portal podcast Come and check us out on the forum. We've had a lot of uh, fun conversations happening over there and a lot of active people that love to put in jokes and, and comics and all sorts of fun stuff. It's pretty so sweet. I really enjoy it. Um, yeah, and that's basically that. Uh, like we said, though, we are taking a dark week next week for our regular episodes, but we will have our film Friday up for you all. So check out the series, the miniseries Ascension. And then, yeah, it'll be up on Friday. That's right. Mm-hmm. And just last time thank you for listening to this great flood series people try to stay dry out there and uh we will uh, join the wave that's right let's catch the wave amber's been saying that for the last three weeks all right guys we'll catch you soon